0: Thanks for listening to this Institute of Art and Ideas podcast, bringing you philosophy for our times. Here at the IAI, we're committed to taking philosophy out of dusty books and lecture halls and into the heart of public life. If you enjoy this debate and want to carry on the discussion, or watch over a thousand more debates and talks on all the latest issues in philosophy, science, politics and arts, visit iai.tv. Remember to subscribe and review on iTunes. So welcome, everybody, to this event on doing right and feeling good. And the theme of this debate is that we think empathising with others is the route to a better world. But studies show that sympathy... Sorry, empathy. won't make that mistake again. Empathy encourages us to help one named child over ten anonymous others. So is morality strangely not about empathy at all? Does the moral way to act have more to do with thinking than feeling? or is empathy a vital force for good? And I'm very pleased to welcome, for this debate, Anders Sandberg here, who is James Martin Fellow um, at the Future of Humanity Institute at Oxford University, and his research centers on the ethical implications of future technologies. Uh, Peter Dews, to my left, is Professor of Philosophy at the University of Essex. Peter is a leading scholar in critical theory and post-Kantian philosophy and he's the author of The Idea of Evil. And Simon Baron-Cohen is Professor of Psychology at the University of Cambridge, and his books include The Science of Evil and The Essential Difference. So, um, for the beginning of this debate, I'd like to ask our three speakers to set out their position, um, a few, three minutes or so um, uh, to, to make their pitch, and I'm going to ask Anders to start us off.
2: Thank you. So the previous session in here was about evil, so now we're going to do the good side, trying to do good in the world. And I think the core question here is, how much does emotion have to do with that? Maybe what's love got to do with it, uh, but it might be more about compassion or other warm-hearted feelings. And traditionally, philosophers have been a bit divided about this. David Hume famously said that no, it's our passions that are driving our moral reasoning. But quite a lot of philosophers have felt that, no, doing the right thing has very little to do with uh, feeling it. You need want to do the, the correct thing. The right thing is a correct thing, and that means that you need to reason well about it. Now, the most extreme example might be Kant, who would, uh, would have argued that actually yeah, emotions get in the way of reasoning through what you should be doing, you, what you ought to be doing. And uh, similarly you have many utilitarians who might argue that actually you should calculate what's the most good and then do that. Now the problem might of course be where do we get the good from? And you could argue that actually the good is those wonderful positive feelings either from a purely hedonistic perspective or some more refined form of uh, action. I help people and I find that meaningful even if it's kind of painful and effortful to do that helpful thing. And that meaning, that is another reason. But from an abstract standpoint, we might also want to take a step back and say, if we want to do good in the world, shouldn't we try to actually maximize the good? And this is where the consequentialists and the other ethicists really get apart. Because the consequentialists generally say, yes, the consequences of an action that matter. And that means that even if I have really crazy motivations, if I reliably do a lot of things (laughs) that are good and proper, I'm doing good things, and that's what matters. Meanwhile, the Kantians would say, hey, wait a minute, your intentions are all screwed up, Anders. You can't really, uh, uh, even though you're helping orphans and making the environment cleaner, you're doing that for totally misguided, perverted reasons. It's all tainted the consequential would say, yeah, but if Anders is crazy and is doing good efficiently, we should be just happy about that. So I think this is what the debate is going to be about. And my position is actually, I think consequentialism, <coughs> even if you think that Kant has a lot of, uh, to offer, if you can save two kids uh, rather than one kid, you should be saving two kids. Even if you're a Kantian, uh, you would agree that saving more people would be a good thing, even though your motivations might be a bit weird.
0: Okay thank you Anders so Peter
2: well uh, d- just one quick point in
3: relation to uh, Anders last point what if the one child was your son or daughter you know what w- what would be the right thing to do as opposed to the two children uh, that's obviously a very long standing uh, issue in philosophy uh, I, d- I just wanted to make a few a few points about a p- the kind of polarity in this debate uh, one is uh, that we we have um, it seems quite a good idea to ma- to make sort of uh, empathy the basis of morality, and uh, uh, in in the nineteenth century uh, Schopenhauer was the great great philosopher who did that. He thought that what he called mitleid, which is literally suffering with, which is like etymologically the same as compassion or sympathy, uh, was the was the very basis of ethics. But he ha- he had a very a whole metaphysics behind that. So he thought that uh, actually, when you feel compassion, it's not just you're uh, sort of replicating the feelings of another person, but the very the kind of metaphysical barrier between yourself and the other self is, is kind of dissolving or breaking down. And he thought that ultimately, uh, we are all one. Uh, you know, uh, we, we are at the metaphysical level, we are, uh, you know, just one uh, uh, consciousness. Uh, So he was very influenced by uh, sort of uh, Oriental philosophy, Buddhist and uh, Hindu philosophy. But you might not want to buy that whole metaphysical package and I'm I'm sure that uh, Simon wouldn't want to do that. Um, as, as regards the more rational, so you might, the, the problem with empathy is that it might be too particularistic. You know, you might think, well, it's very easy to imp- imp- empathize with people who are like you, rationally, racially, culturally, sociologically, and so forth. But it's also very easy to kind of um, ostracize or demonize people who are not like you. So there seem to be uh, limits to empathy, it doesn't have sufficient scope. So throughout the history of philosophy, Uh, you know, some thinkers have said, no, we need something more rational, as Anders was saying. Well, what what are the problems with that? Well, the, the utilitarian view is, well, we should strive for the greatest happiness of the greatest number. That seems fairly obvious. But in the everyday situation, how on earth could you ever calculate that? It's just an impossible... How could you ever know what you were doing would, in the end, lead to the greatest happiness of the greatest number of human beings? It involves a kind of level of abstraction and calculation which is just totally remote from everyday life and the situations in which we make moral decisions. Um, A view which is also very universalist is that of Immanuel Kant, but in a way it's closer to our everyday uh, situation because Kant's basic view is uh, you should not... To put it in a nutshell, you should not make an exception for yourself. That's the basic idea of morality. He puts it in more flowery language. He says that the maxim of your action, in other words, the principle on which you act, you should also be able to uh, will as a universal law. So basically, he's saying the principle on which you act. Uh, so if you, if you think it's OK uh, not to return your library books, uh, implicitly, you're, you're saying it's OK for nobody to return their library books. And then there wouldn't be any books in the library. So that would be pretty self-defeating. So you have to will that your principle should be a universal principle. And that's a very, in a way, a very rationalistic way of thinking about ethics. But it is very universalistic. Well, what's the problem with that? What might be the problem with that? Well, there's one notorious article by Kant uh, which is called something like On a Supposed Right to Lie Out of a Respect for Humanity. And he sets up a situation in which uh, there is, a, there is a, someone with a knife uh, pursuing someone and their, their victim has disappeared into a house. And the, the, the intending murderer says, where did that person go? And Kant says, you have to tell the truth. You have to say he went into the house. Uh, because there's an absolute mor- moral prohibition against, against lying, yeah, and uh, most people have thought, wow, you know, he's lost it. <laughs> However convincing uh, he might be in general, this is, this is, this is, this is, taking, this is taking things too far. Uh, there's an interesting codicil to that. Uh, he's, th- his further argument is, well, say, um, uh, say you misled the intended murder and said he went that away, OK? Um, and you told a lie. If, in fact, the, the intended victim didn't go into the house but did go that away way and the murderer killed him, you'd be responsible because you told a lie which te- sent the murderer in the right direction. But if you said he went into the house and he did go into the house, even if the guy got killed, you wouldn't be responsible. <laughs> uh, so y- you can see the convolutions. Uh, <laughs> Um, so there's something, wor- you know, there's something wor- worrying about that level of abstraction. I mean, what I wanted to do just by, uh, in a quick few closing remarks, is to suggest a third alternative. There, wor- there are some moral philosophers in the 20th century and uh, two most famous examples are Immanuel Levinas, a uh, famous French-Jewish philosopher, and uh, a Danish philosopher called Lergsdrup,
2: I'm sure I haven't pronounced that correctly. but <laughs> <laughs> I'm Swedish, I can't pronounce Danish either. <laughs> uh, uh,
3: who thought that the basis of morality was neither rationalism in the form of utilitarianism or Cantonism, nor empathy, but something like a kind of innate respect for another human being. Levinas called it the face-to-face. He just thought that w- when you encounter another human being, your kind of default response is a sense of respect. Here is someone who, uh, whose uh, body and whose integrity I should not infringe on, that I should respect. Uh, so that's not really... A- he, th- he didn't think that was empathy. He thought that was something even more basic, uh, 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 an, an awareness of the humanity in another another human being. And Lurgström's got a very similar idea. He calls, it the, the, he calls it the absolute moral demand, that just when you... Your awareness that, that we're all interwoven in, 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 in life, that we depend on each other, we have to trust each other, just produces this intrinsic sense of uh, a need to respect the other. Now, that's not to say that it can't go wrong, that it can't be obliterated, uh, it can't be distorted and so on, but he just, uh, th- both of these thinkers think there's a kind of default position, and it's not empathy, uh, so it doesn't have the problems of empathy, but neither is it rationalistic in the way that some moral theories are.
0: Thank you. Okay, Simon.
3: Um,
1: so for me, the, um, the big question is, uh, is how do we develop a moral code? Uh, because I think we'll all agree that human beings need a moral compass to guide their behaviour. And, uh, you know, is, is empathy necessary uh, and indeed the best way to end up with a moral compass? Uh, or is a more logic-based, uh, rational approach the best way to end up with a moral compass. And I would sort of argue that actually there are many routes to developing morality. Uh, The key thing is that children grow up with a concept of morality about what's good and what's not good. Uh, But how they get there doesn't really matter. So there are different routes to the same uh, developmental outcome. Um, One route is empathy based. So we see somebody else in pain or suffering, and we have a very immediate, emotional, affective response. You know, we see the victims of the tsunami, and we want to do something about it. We donate money, for example. Or we see the refugees coming into the jungle in Calais, and we feel this is wrong, we want to do something about it. But it might be at a very emotional level, and I would say that's the empathy-based based route. The other approach could be a sort of logic-based approach, um, what I call systemizing, where you try to understand, in this case, human behavior or the way society works through a system of rules, um, and you try, you try to achieve, you, you try to make a judgment about what's right and wrong based on, on rules. Um, and again, that could be a perfectly valid way to end up with a, with a moral position, a moral c- compass. So, uh, one example of that would be the golden rule of treat others the way you would like to be treated. And that's, you, know, you can arrive at that through pure logic because it seems to be um, the fairest for everybody. So um, I think you could go down these two different routes to end up with a moral, a moral compass, a moral code. Um, you could also imagine that some people use a hybrid and I think that's probably what I'll argue um, that we, we have our capacity for empathy, that can be elicited very spontaneously when we see somebody else suffering, and it, ma- it, it impels us to want to help them, to reduce their distress. Uh, we can also not just follow our emotions, we can use our logic and our system of rules that we've developed. Um, but I would sort of argue against Bloom's position know, Bloom says, you know, don't rely on empathy when you're trying to figure out what's the right thing to do because empathy will mislead us at times or it will cloud our judgment. Just rely on logic. And I think that that pure reliance on logic carries dangers. You know, you could, uh, you could, um, you could argue that when Hitler came up with the so-called final solution of how to make Germany better, he was using a, a kind of cold logic and that led to the, um, the creation of a killing machine, which would ultimately improve the German race, the German economy. There was a kind of logic behind it. But because of the absence of empathy for the victims of that machine, logic alone led to, uh, le- le- led to tragedy. So um, you know, I think where we're looking at how do we cultivate Um, a moral compass in children, we should probably be encouraging both an empathy-based approach and a rule-based or systems-based approach. Uh, The last point I'll just throw in is that I'm a psychologist and I I work with people with autism and uh, one view of autism is that these are individuals who struggle with empathy. Does that mean that people with autism are gonna end up without a moral compass? Or you know, does it mean that their morality is going to be very skewed if they're purely relying on a kind of logic-based approach to deciding what's, what, what, what counts as good? Uh, well, um, if we break down empathy into two components, and this was something I mentioned in the previous session, the sort of cognitive empathy, where it's all about recognising someone else's feelings and thoughts, and then an affective empathy which is all about emotionally responding to someone else's thoughts and feelings. People with autism struggle with the first kind. If they have to read facial expressions or body language, they might find that very confusing. But interestingly, that doesn't lead them to hurt other people. Typically, it leads them to avoid other people because they find other people's behavior very confusing. But the affective part of empathy seems to be intact in people with autism. Um, If they hear that other people are suffering, it upsets them and they want to do something about it. Uh, Interestingly, people with autism love rules. Uh, They like things to be well specified and they like things to be unambiguous. So a legal system which really clearly defines what you can and can't do, they might seize upon as black and white, that people should follow the rules. And that can often lead people with autism to be hypermoral, that they become the whistleblowers in situations where people are breaking the rules. So far from uh, their difficulties with cognitive empathy leading them to be immoral, uh, if anything, their, uh, their strong love of systems and rules, combined with their ability to, or their capacity to have affective empathy, to care about other people, means that they do indeed end up as highly moral.
0: The Debate. Theme 1. Well, thank you, Simon. That's a very useful distinction, I think, between understanding another person's predicament and feeling their predicament. But can we just, um, I want to turn to you, Peter, as our philosopher, to to ask if we actually understand what we mean by the term empathy, because somebody, um, another speaker just before this session, told me that actually the word sympathy used to mean what we now understand as empathy, you know, feeling somebody else's suffering. Um, But then the word sympathy actually changed to the meaning that that it has now. It sort of carries a kind of condescending, um, almost kind of lip service connotations, I feel your pain when you don't, actually, whereas empathy is it, more on a level that you're engaging with, or you're putting yourself in somebody else's shoes. So what is it? What can, as a philosopher, what's the definition of empathy? And there might be disagreement on this.
3: Uh, well, that's, that's, that's really... Uh, it's, it's hard to define. I mean, as regards uh, you know, sympathy, I mean, uh, all these words uh, have the same sort of etymological structure. So sym-pathos in ancient Greek means feeling with, so, in Latin, that is com-passion. That's exactly the same structure. And in German, it's mit-light, which is mit-with-light-suffering. So, all these words mean the same thing, suffer, suffering with or feeling uh, feeling with. But I think you're right that uh, that this notion of sympathy did take, uh, take on a, uh, a tone of condescension. And maybe that's one of the... I haven't studied the history of empathy as a word, but it seems that it, it has come in to suggest a more egalitarian relationship in which we are um, sort of, as it were, <coughs> uh, feeling or reproducing what the other, uh, other, other, uh, uh, other person is feeling. Uh, I mean, one, one, I think, interesting aspect of this, uh, uh, this whole deb- debate we're having, is that it does have a kind of gendered dimension. Uh, about 30 years ago now, there's uh, the American psychologist called Carol Gilligan published a book called In a Different Voice, in which she suggested that uh, <coughs> males and females have different orientations towards morality, uh, that, um, that uh, males are more, more rule-oriented, uh, whereas women are more care-oriented. And she said you could even see this in the playground. If you go into a play- playground in an infant school, You know, the boys will spend hours discussing and working out the rules of the game before they actually start playing. They're kind of obsessed with setting up the rules. Uh, Whereas girls tend not to play in that way. uh, Maybe you disagree, but... uh
0: Well, nature or nurture. (laughs)
3: Exactly. Uh, Well, then this raises a big nature... You know, some feminists hate this because, you you know, she seems to be saying, oh, women are all touchy-feely and and men are the ones who, who know how to stick to rules. Uh, But one example she gives is that uh, she set moral problems and put them to girls and boys. And one problem was, you know, if uh, there's a man whose wife is desperately ill, but he can't afford the medicine, uh, does he, uh, should he, is he entitled to break into the pharmacy and just steal the medicine? And the boys would tend to say, yeah, of course, you know, a human life is more important than, than burglary. He should just break into the pharmacy and steal the medicine. Uh, whereas the girls would tend to say, well, he should, uh, he should go and talk to the pharmacist and explain the situation that his wife is in and maybe they can reach some kind of arrangement and so on and so forth. So, um,
0: Well, perhaps <laughs> those girls have been incultrated to, to act in that condition, to act in that way from day one. Although, Simon, I know you work on the, the gender differences in um, uh, brains from a very young age. But maybe you might have a different view. But I, I was actually interested... I mean, I, I, I'll cut Yeah, um, I'll ask Anders first, I want to come back to you on a question about neurological um, responses and and their their role in empathy, but Anders, can we talk about the difference between empathy and altruism, or whether they are in fact a binary opposition, because actually you might think it feels good to be empathetic, you get that sort of warm fuzzy feeling, a fellow feeling, but actually does it feel good to be empathetic, because you then feel somebody's pain. You experience their suffering, um, as it were, and actually isn't that rather similar to altruism, putting yourself out of it?
2: Mm. Yeah, I I think there is an important aspect of altruism where you try to generalize, you try to be universal. Empathy is typically how we start with that. I vividly remember in school when uh, my class had been treating uh, a young teacher rather badly. And she was in tears. This was her first class uh, ever, and it was a total shambles. Uh, She couldn't control it at all, and then it was time for the next lesson. And I remained and tried to comfort the poor teacher. Uh, At that point, I felt very, very bad, because I felt how badly she felt. And then I came to the next lesson uh, lesson, and I was, of course, late because I'd been trying to comfort this poor teacher. (laughs) And the rest of the class had covered for me. They had uh, come up with a nice example. Oh, Anders wasn't feeling very well. He's a bit delayed. (laughs) And and that made me actually feel really happy about my classmates. Yeah, they're really treating that poor teacher badly. But they also could show a kind of joint uh, coordination (laughs) uh, about (laughs) one of their own. Now, looking back at this, of course, wait a minute, why did they choose to help me rather than be nice to the poor teacher? And the real answer is, of course, I was one of the members of the group. So that empathy was, in a sense, acting uh, in a somewhat bad way. They had a degree of altruism like uh, kids have at that age, but it was reserved for a certain group. And generally, our ability to feel empathy is diminishing with distance. While we can abstract altruism, it's again much easier to be altruistic about people who are like us. But once you start feeling a bit for a group, you can expand the circle of concern and you can abstract it away. Quite often you might need a trigger. Uh, A a friend of mine, uh, she had been following the Syrian refugee crisis and then she saw the pictures of that poor boy who drowned. And that was the trigger. Now she started being very active and actually trying to help the situation on a fairly abstract level. Donating money, coordinating people, not actually going to Greece and helping people out of the waves, but trying to get it to work on a high level. So here the empathy triggered altruism. But altruism, can, you can take that on a very abstract level. So I think we're gonna get in more into this later on, but th- our institute are sharing offices with the Center for Effective Altruism, which are really, Hardcore consequentialists who are trying to maximize the amount of good they do in the world, and quite a lot of that is on a very abstract uh, level, there are not that many pictures on the wall of starving children, it's more a question of at the whiteboard about the statistics, how can we maximize the amount of quality adjusted life years we save per year per dollar. Which is very good for a lot of people. But many people say that is kind of rather remote from the warm hearts we normally think about when dealing with compassion. I think this can be rather useful because it actually saves a lot of people. But the question is how do you motivate yourself to do it? And I think The motor, quite often, is the more human uh, empathy, Uh, that feeling that, oh, I feel with that uh, person, even the the person on the television screen, my heart goes out to them, and that makes me want to do something. But then, hopefully, that energy, it goes to my brain, and I figure out, what can I do to help the most?
0: Well, it's really interesting, um, and we're going to c- go on to talk about um, pragmatic um, impacts um, on the world um, in a moment. But it's very interesting that you bring up um, the news media and how that's perhaps changing our, the way that we empathise or, or not. And the, the fact that in some ways, you know, the world is in our living rooms through 24-hour news and so on. But in other ways, we're quite detached and the other people's plight is mediated through the news. And, so um but so, Simon, I mean, you work on the brain, which is a fixed thing in some ways, um, but so I'm interested in you know in how people empathize Is it, is it th- you, that you empathize with people that you um, know? Is it people that are like you? i mean the the, other, the case of Eilan Cody, um, I think he sort of looked similar to children that perhaps we might be familiar with meeting in the west, and, and that had an effect perhaps there. Um, uh, perhaps problematically, in a way, is it, or is it that we see suffering um, and it's just the witnessing suffering? So neurologically or cognitively, how does empathy happen?
1: So uh, just, um, first of all, picking up on your first comment about the brain is fixed. I don't think the brain is fixed. I mean, it's a very dynamic uh, uh, organ. Uh, it's developing all the time, but also it's responding situationally all the time. So um, you know, fi- fixed is probably the opposite of the, of what the brain is and does, and uh, the notion of plasticity is is also quite important here in terms of um, our ability to learn, so uh, to, to to take in new information. But in terms of you know what's the brain doing when we when we empathise? Nowadays, scientists can look at at the brain using brain imaging, uh, and particularly functional. Uh, brain imaging where you perhaps present the person who's lying in the scanner with an image of somebody suffering or an image of somebody's facial expression and actually look at which bits of the brain are activated when they're seeing somebody else in distress or having an emotion. And it turns out that empathy doesn't reside in a single part of the brain. There's a whole network of regions. Uh, Some of them are cortical like the ventromedial prefrontal cortex in the, fr- in the frontal lobes. Some of them are subcortical in the limbic system, like the amygdala. Uh, but, you know, these are different regions that respond in, uh, to different aspects of emotional stimuli. And, uh, you know, you can find individual differences in reactivity or response in these different brain regions. So that could help us understand why some people show more empathy than others the activity of these brain regions uh, may be higher in some individuals than others. But that's, of course, um, begging the question of why. And if we're trying to understand what gives rise to individual differences in empathy, we have to look at uh, both social factors, um, the experience that you've had as a child, and biological factors, your genes, your hormones, and other biological, for example, neurotransmitters that all contribute To the the response of this empathy circuit in the brain.
3: Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to iai.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses, and live events. Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports, and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper. Get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month and there's no commitment to pay. So subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level.
0: Okay. And it's worth (laughs)
2: recognizing that this is an evolved system. If you look at other mammals, uh, it seems like you find various levels of empathy in other forms of mammals. And of of course, if you're a social creature and need to rear your young, you need to be able to feel for them to some extent. And the more social uh, and the more complex the representation becomes, of course, the more you extend that. So that's why you can see that even mice uh, sometimes help each other, even though there is nothing in it for them. They recognize that that other mouse is in distress, and if I press this lever, they get out of the cage. While monkeys have more advanced systems. And some of this uh, interesting overlaps, of course, with what uh, people in neuroethics are interested in for the neural basis of moral cognition there is an interesting ongoing discussion about some of these brains that how the role they play when we make a moral decision because in some cases people seem to be using more of a dorsolateral frontal cortex to make a kind of reasoned argument and sometimes the amygdala just charges on and they follow a moral intuition and there's a very hearty quarrel among different ethicists about what that actually tells us about morality and how we should be thinking but it's pretty clear that that empathy is quite densely interwoven with the systems we actually use when making moral decisions. But I
1: think y- you were asking, you know, what triggers us to, uh, to show empathy and then hopefully to do good. And uh, for different people, it's different kind of triggers. So for people who needed that photograph of the child who had drowned, you know, it, they needed to see this was a real child and it was somebody's child before they could actually understand the plight of the refugees. But, you know, the idea that uh, our empathy circuit in the brain uh, is only triggered by seeing cues from our own group uh, and the dangers of, e- of using empathy in terms of we're only going to favour our own group. I just don't think that's, you know, that's actually the case. That, you know, when we heard about the tsunami, which happened far away to a different group, many people, for, that, for them, just hearing, about, hearing the news, that was a sufficient trigger to want to donate, for example. So I, d- I don't think empathy is, um, uh, is kind of limited by your ethnic group, your social group, although it's obviously easily manipulated uh, in that way.
0: Theme two. Okay, so um, I'd like to move on now to talk about um, how to be effective. What are the most effective ways of doing good in the world, practically speaking, and looking to the future? And we all hear about the rise of data and you know, all crunching data and aggregating data. So this is the kind of the big picture rather than perhaps those more I- individual relationships. And I imagine you crunching data at the Oxford Martin Institute. But how do you get people to do good if they, ha- if they don't have that incentive, that personal incentive to do so? How are you tackling that problem? Uh,
2: well, the problem is more of incentive than the data. So uh, a few years back, uh, one of our uh, local researchers, Toby Ord, started being serious about doing good in the world. He realized he didn't need the extra money he was earning, uh, so he could give that to charity. And then being a consequentialist, he wanted to give to the most effective charity. So he started trying to figure out which was the best place to put the money. And after a bit of uh, studying, he discovered there have actually been investigations about the efficacy of different health interventions in Africa. And the difference was not just a few in the multiples, but it could be four orders of magnitude difference. In terms of quality adjusted life years, you get per dollar, the number of lives you can save per dollar. This is a factor of 10,000. That's enormous. And this was not secret information. This was an old report from the World Health Organization gathering dust because nobody had really bothered looking or people had looked and said, oh yes, this is much more effective than that. And then they didn't do anything because it was just dry numbers. What it really took was somebody realizing, hey, this matters a lot. I want to help a lot of people and I better help them in the most maximally effective way. Yeah, I can certainly donate to anything, but if I donate to that, more people will be saved. So the crunching of data might be, it's important because there's still a surprising amount we don't know about what's effective to do. But the real problem is, of course, can you motivate people to do it? And on one level, of course, you can show them a picture of a child in need. And it it better be one child with one name because (laughs) as soon as you show 10 children in need, uh, the willingness to donate goes down. And if you show a million children in need, oh, yes, it's very abstract, it's very sad, but that's how the world is. But if it's little Maya, yeah, everybody wants to help. That's kind of crude. Ideally, you want people to first recognize that problem and then recognize that this is something we ought to do we ought to generalize beyond that i don't want to be the kind of person who just donates to the named little kid but actually helps a lot of kids and that's typically how the effective altruists are getting uh, people to realize that yeah we should try to be more effective about it and you might be a Kantian and say yeah but it's really your intention to help that matters morally but still if your intention to help uh, matters uh, morally, you might still want to help as many as possible with that intention. And then of course, uh, I think mostly it's a matter of outreach. I'm just going to wave around with w- n- 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 Will McCaskill's book, great book, I haven't written it, but it's kind of a nice uh, n- one. But the main reason I was bringing it is actually that when you l- read through the um, a list of chapters, uh, the, the how just how much can you achieve? Uh, How many people benefit and by how much uh, is this the most effective thing you can do? Is this area neglected? What would have happened otherwise and so on? Uh, There is very little talk uh, uh, here on compassion. It's all about altruism on a fairly intellectual level. And it's kind of noticeable that the effective altruism generally tends to be kind of coming from philosophical, from an academic background, because they generally tend to start with that maximizing, optimizing mindset. That might not be for everybody, but I think it would be better if more people could generalise like that.
0: Peter, how do you respond to that?
2: Uh, well, I, I mean, I just had some thoughts about the, you know, the kind of
3: uh, the a- a- Alan Kurdi episode as the, w- the thing that triggered a lot of uh, uh, compassion and, and activity. And I think we've been discussing it so far as something very positive. You know, that suddenly there was this image that people responded to. But personally, I also find it rather worrying and disturbing because prior to that, for months and months we had been seeing pictures of people drowning in the Mediterranean. And, and you know, with very little input in people... In fact, you know, as you know, in the popular newspapers, uh, the, these immigrants were being demonised, even though they were dra- drowning in the sea. So although you might think it's very positive that suddenly there was a surge of response, I mean, I think we have to think, well, what were the cultural and sociological and media conditions for that image suddenly to go global, or to go viral, as we say. Uh, but not only that, uh, that surge of response can also evaporate very quickly. So, for example, as soon as we had those uh, in- incidents of uh, sexual harassment in Cologne at <laughs> New Year, you know, the, the sympathy for the uh, immigrants in Germany sank uh, very rapidly. So th- th- these kinds of fluctuations and what's actually causing them in terms of the media, how the media is em- employed, what ca- what's impacting on, on us and so forth. I think we have to be much more conscious of that. It's not just a positive thing that, that we can sort of get, fluctuate up and down so so quickly in response to certain triggers.
0: But, but on, this, on the strategic point, um, yeah. in terms of what Anders was saying about um, thinking about motivation being about maximising impact, do you have a philosophical... Disagreement with that, or a practical disagreement with that? I, I don't
3: have a practical disagreement. By I, th- I think it's absolutely right to say that that sort of um, uh, quoting figures and numbers and uh, uh, it, it lacks it doesn't it doesn't actually grip people. It doesn't. It doesn't. There's there's got to be something more. There's got to be something more than that, and uh, I, I do think that. Um, um, it also, it's possible for us to break through these barriers of culture and ethnicity and, and so on and so forth. There are situations in which uh, we're just aware that we are confronted with, with a human being in need, and, and that, it, that is something that uh, uh, we, we are capable of, of, of responding to. But uh, you know, Lemonas uh, always talks, uh, for example, always talks about the face-to-face. Um, and uh, I've puzzled a lot about that over the years because I've thought to myself, well, is he saying, well, you, you only really feel a moral obligation to someone you're directly in front of because that's a very familiar experience. Uh, I think it's broader than that. He, he wants to say, yeah, sometimes he says things like, uh, we're in a face-to-face relation with the rest of humanity. So he's trying to kind of square the circle. He wants to say, yes, we should be universalistic, but there has to be that sort of immediate sense that uh, we owe something to another human, other human beings or to another human being.
0: Simon? Uh, I,
1: I think I'd just pick up on Anders' point that um, if we take an evolutionary perspective, empathy... Um, in humans that has evolved. You know, we, see, we see sort of simpler forms of it in other animals. Um, but empathy always occurs in the context of a very specific relationship. You know, you see the homeless guy on the street, or you see somebody has fallen into the lake, and you're, you've got a very direct emotional response of, how can I help? Uh, but it's kind of a one-to-one. And uh, that's probably why these photographs of individuals... You know, are such a powerful trigger but you're really asking how can we scale that up so that we're not just helping one person and that's why I was arguing for a sort of hybrid approach where we use, we, we use our very, if you like, primitive emotional response to seeing somebody else in distress but we also make use of, of big data, of information uh, to think about how can, we, how can we help in the most effective way and just kind of relying on one or the other <laughs> might not be Um, you know, optimal, but a a hybrid approach is probably a better way to go.
2: Uh, It's also a matter of error correction. Earlier you mentioned the problems that happens if you follow logic ruthlessly. Most moral systems, if you sit down in a philosophy seminar, will very quickly come up with cases where they lead to the most outrageous and horrible conclusions. And that's typically all the fun (laughs) in an ethics seminar. But in practice, we don't want people to follow through totally on the morality. And similarly, we have seen these problems with our emotions. Generally, we want to make sure that these systems act as error correction for each other. Because normally when we do reasoning, the probability of us reasoning wrong is fairly high. And especially about important things we don't want to be wrong. So we need to either use very careful reasoning or ideally several overlapping ways of checking that we got the right result. And this might also be true for our emotions. We might actually be feeling wrong in many ways. We might be having biases and framings that are actually not appropriate. So it's, again, useful to have multiple layers and see, can they, do they point in the same direction or are we getting some interesting contradiction that we might want to resolve?
0: Theme three. But do we all agree that perhaps we need to keep the, the data and the philosophy in the back room, as it were? and use pragmatically use empathy in the sort of front of house you know as charities often do with their advertising with individuals so that we can achieve the result or do you think do we think that we can actually put the the data the big picture at the you know at the cent- at the front of things and actually tell people actually sorry but let's just be rational about this that this do you want to help maximum maximum ma- number of people or or, or not yeah I think I've, I've I think
1: I've sort of laid my cards on the table and, in terms of saying we should use both.
2: Mm. Uh, and I would say without having that emotional drive to want to help others, it's pretty unlikely that you should care about the data. Uh, in, uh, I- if I see that, yeah, I could donate and save 10,000 lives, but I don't care about those lives. Well, in that case, it doesn't matter but I know this fact. Mm. So there is an important role of emotion as a driver, as a motivator. And also when you go out and do something uh, moral, it's n- one thing if it's very, very easy to do. It doesn't take an effort from you. Another thing if you actually need to work a bit on it. It's at that point you actually need uh, that emotional driver. So in general, I think most moral problems are actually very unlike what we discuss in the philosophy department, because we get into the weird edge cases and the interesting dilemmas. But most of everyday moral problems are actually not a deep ethical issue. It's more, do I have uh, energy to be kind to that person? <laughs> and that might be just more pure psychology or even drinking enough coffee.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Peter, are you happy with a hybrid?
3: Uh, yeah, I think I'm happy with a hybrid. I mean, what I, what I would say is that, uh, that um, if, if, if we kind of lose the, the initial moral impulse, then there's a, there's a danger that... Uh, uh, even sort of altruism just becomes a kind of bureaucratic uh, exercise. And uh, people, people don't like being just treated as objects of, of bureaucratic uh, operations, even, even when they're being helped. You know, the, there's something about that way of treating other people, even when it's supposed to be in their best interests. So, for example, to, get, to give an example with the, the jungle at Calais, you know, the people did not want to be moved out of their cardboard shacks into these containers uh, that had been provided for them, even though, ostensibly, you know, they might, might be in a, in a more comfortable position. So um, I think there's, al- the, there's always that problem. And to go back to what I was saying about Levinas... So Levinas talks about this in, in terms of the relation between the face f- face-to-face relation on the one hand and what he calls justice on the other. And, and, and his, his basic idea is, well, if we ever lost that, that initial face-to-face, that initial moral impulse, Even justice would become something kind of desiccated and anonymous and bureaucratic. Uh, So we always have to keep that uh, initial impulse, which is getting things going.
2: Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, I come from a land where we have kind of institutionalized compassion. (laughs) Uh, And uh, on one hand, objectively, it works reasonably well. But there is also this annoyance, for example, the Swedes feel when they see beggars in the street. Why aren't they using the social security system? After all, it's there. You just need to fill out the right forms and agree on a certain uh, assumed social contract. The fact that there are beggars in the street that don't get that help is kind of an insult, both to the system, and many Swedes, of course, have internalized a view that, yes, we have created this wonderful people's home that is going to help us. And also an admission of failure. It doesn't work for everybody, <laughs> despite wha- our intentions which of course creates an interesting undercurrent of aggression. Uh, Personally, I believe one reason Sweden is moving very quickly towards a cashless society is so that you don't uh, need to give any uh, uh, coins to beggars. (laughs) (laughs) Although, it turns out that many of the beggars are now using the Swish swish system on their mobile phones, you can (laughs) actually pay them anyway.
0: (laughs) Okay, um, (laughs) on that slightly disturbing note, I'd like to to thank our fantastic speakers. Thank you for listening to this Institute of Art and Ideas podcast. If you enjoyed this debate and want to carry on the discussion, visit IAI.tv. Remember to subscribe and review on iTunes. Look around.
2: You can find cars like these on Autotrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Autotrader. Just you wait. Autotrader.